Samuelis. I'm a professor at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. I have worked at the college for over 20 years now. I have an active clinical practice site at the Stratton VA Medical Center where I participate in the antibiotic stewardship program. And in addition to teaching at the college, I have an active research program really looking at antibiotic exposure response relationship in patients with bacterial infections, including both gram positive and negative and, and C. difficile. Ladies, I want to welcome you to the Pharmacy Podcast Network and our new coverage coming um, at the end of our 2023 recording year and into our new 2024 year. We'll have a lot more content around this subject. Um, thank you so much for being part of this. All right, thank you for having me today. All right. So the UN, the Environment Program, just put out an um, interesting story, and it's going to start into a series it was dated on November 14th of 2023, and the title was What is Microbial Resistance and Why Is It a Growing Threat? And I was really interested in um, the, the amount of information that was packed into this um, preface document that's turning into kind of like a multi-purpose blog. But I want to start out with you, Tom, and, and just get from your insights. What do you see as the biggest problem with antimicrobial resistance in our hospital systems today? Um, I think that's a good question. And the way I look at it is, I think hot infections in hospitalized patients, particularly those due to antimicrobial resistant or AMR pathogens, is underappreciated. So let's just kind of take a step back and just think, you know, on, on a larger scale. So there's about 6,000 hospitals in the United States, you know, representing about 34 million hospital admissions per year. So if we take out the, the maternal, um, neonatal emissions, there's about 28 million emissions per year. So any given day, we have 600,000 patients in U.S. hospitals. So when we look at these patients in U.S. hospitals, just across all uh, these different point prevalence studies, what they find is half of hospitalized individuals are on an antibiotic. And, you know, they receive antibiotics for a variety of reasons. Many cases, it's, you know, prophylaxis before surgery. But what they find is 75% of patients in U.S. hospitals on any given, um, of those 50% of patients on antibiotics, 75% are receiving an antibiotic for an active infection. So if we kind of roll the numbers back, what we're talking about is somewhere between 12 to 15 million hospitalized Americans per year are being treated for an infection within a hospital. So we look at that number, not only is, you know, you might say, well, a lot of these people get sick in the community and go to the hospital setting. What we're finding is the CDC estimates about 1.52 million actually develop their infection during their hospitalization. So when we think about that, you know, 12 to 15,000 um, patients per year have an infection within a hospital, you know, 2 million acquire their infection during their hospitalization. And just looking at those who have a healthcare-associated infection, it's about 100,000 associated deaths. So of those 1 in 25 patients who are admitted to a hospital who develop a healthcare-associated infections, uh, we're talking about 100,000 deaths. And if we kind of break it down per hour, 11 Americans die per hour in a U.S. hospital due to an infection they inquired in their hospitalization. So the next question is, well, you know, why am I going over these general statistics? What we find is, in, you know, among individuals who are treated in hospitals with infection, 
more than 70% of these infections are caused by a bacteria that are resistant to one of the most commonly used antibiotics to treat them. So again, you know, we've got 12 to 15 million people admitted. You take 70%. We have 8 million people per year in the United States who are hospitalized with the AMR infection. So why is AMR so concerning? Um, patients with AMR infections have increased mortality and morbidity relative to those with susceptible infections. So there's a very nice paper published in, in The Lancet looking at kind of the global burden of antibiotic resistance. And they say each year, there's about 5 million deaths associated with AMR. And when we look at these pathogens, most of these deaths are related to common gram-negative organisms that cause infections within U.S. hospitals. If we kind of center that back within the United States, there's about 2.8 to 3 million AMR infections per year per the CDC, resulting in about 30 to 40,000 deaths. And if we also include C. difficile colitis, what we're finding is uh, we're over, well over that 3 million, um, you know, um, infections within the hospital benchmark resulting in over 50,000 deaths. So, you know, I think a lot of people think about infections. They probably think about what happens to them in the community. They take an oral antibiotic and they get better. But, you know, it's a real problem in the hospitals. It's grossly underappreciated. A lot of people who come to the hospital develop an infection that they otherwise wouldn't have. And we're talking about millions of Americans. And, you know, most of these are caused by AMR pathogens. So I think just the totality of the problem is, is really, you know, not appreciated by the lay public. So the other thing when I think about AMR, it's not only a problem with increased, you know, mortality. Again, patients who have an AMR infection relative to a susceptible infection usually see about a 0.5 to a one-fold increase in death, so a doubling of depth in most cases. But they have increased hospital length of stay. Um, they have increased hospital costs. I think we're all aware of, you know, the current, you know, um, taxes on our current healthcare systems and, and infections, particularly those acquired in the hospital, attribute to that, especially if they are an ANMR infection. And there's also a lot of, you know, patient-specific sequelae associated with AMR infections. They have um, decreased functional status during their hospitalization. And AMR is the gift that keeps on giving. So if you're so fortunate to survive your hospitalization with an AMR infection, Many of them require care in a long-term care facility post-discharge. So it's not like, you know, you just get better after your immediate hospitalization and go home. Rather, these patients have extended um, health care stays outside their initial hospitalization. So, you know, when I think about some of the, the major public health threats with the United States, infections in hospitals, particularly due to AMR pathogens, has to rank near the top, if not the top. All right, that's an excellent stage. The Super Bowl event uh, annually is ID Week. Um, all of our infectious disease pharmacists talk about this. I follow people on uh, social media that have attended the event. It's the coming together of of our leaders in, in infectious disease. It's a wonderful event. They recently presented some data from real world evidence on um, on Fedrija, and I'm probably saying that incorrectly. Um, but can you kind of like expand a little bit about on that research? What can you tell us about the findings and why pharmacists should be aware of them? Yeah, so it's Vertoja or Cifidrocol. So I always like to, you know, go by antibiotics by generic names. So um, so the one thing you need to realize, uh, Cifidrocol is a, is a recently approved antibiotic. And, and, you know, it's a welcome addition to our armamentarium because what it does is it has 
expanded activity against carbapenem-resistant gram-negative pathogens. So when we think about this AMR pathogen threat across our hospitals, the thing we worry about most is among our key gram-negative organisms, particularly those um, that are resistant to carbapenems. So historically, carbapenems have been our last line agent, okay? So if someone is seriously ill, had a lot of antibiotic exposures, comes from a long-term care facility, kind of that high-risk patient for an AMR infection, you know, carbapenems was the drug of choice, right? So we would start them immediately in those individuals. What we have seen is, you know, the thing I always, you know, tell people is, you know, resistance find, bacteria find a way, right? So they always find a way to survive and persist in hostile environments. And, and hospitals are, are no different than what they have been dealing, you know, across their, you know, their lifespan. So what we're seeing is not surprisingly rising rates of, of carbapenem resistance among key gram-negative pathogens like Klebsiella pneumoniae, Acinetobacter, um, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And also, too, there's certain organisms that cause infections in our hospitals like Stenotrophomonas that are intrinsically resistant to carbapenems. So when a patient is presented, when, the, when a clinician is presented with a patient who has high risk um, for an infection, they don't know what the pathogen is for several days thereafter. So what happens is, you know, if they start a carbapenem and they didn't recognize that the patient actually had a carbapenem-resistant gram-negative infection, they're putting them at high risk for delayed appropriate therapy. And what we're finding is, you know, uh, many patients who have a carbapenem-resistant infection, you know, two-thirds of them don't receive an active drug for four to five days after, you know, that initial culture collection, which is really the time when they had onset of symptoms. And what we're finding is not surprising, you know, how long do you think a critically ill patient, think about that patient at risk for resistance, can survive and, and persist in the absence of effective antibiotics? And, you know, a lot of the sequelae we see with, with carbapenem resistance is simply due to the fact that we don't get an active drug on board, you know, for, you know, four to five days and two-thirds of our patients. So, you know, so again, there's been a real need for new drugs within the space, and, and sifiderical, um kind of fills that void. It's very active against um, carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter, pseudomonas, Klebsiella pneumonia, and also stenotrophomonas, which I mentioned before is intrinsically resistant um, to carbapenems because of the beta-lactamase. So the drug has gone through its, its regulatory, um, you know, normal regulatory processes, um, it's um, it's indicated for complicated urinary tract infections, as well as hospital-acquired bacterial pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia. So, you know, as part of these trials, it was compared to mirapenem. So you may say that's good because you want to compare to what is considered the gold standard. And, you know, historically and, and still to this day, mirapenem is considered the gold standard. You know, we can't, you know, enroll patients in antibiotic trials to placebo. That would be highly unethical because we know how effective these drugs is. But the problem with these, these registrational trials is when you compare, you know, your new drug to an antibiotic like mirapenem is because of clinical equipose, patients in the trial who have carbapenem-resistant infections suspected or documented need to be excluded. So what we do is we get these all these new drugs approved, and we don't have any real-world, you know, we don't have any experience of how good that drug is, except in a small subset of patients who have carbapenem-resistant infections. In the case of sifiderical, the very um, target population we want to use the drug in. So this is why real-world evidence is so important in the setting of, you know, our with our new gram-negative antibiotics like Zafiderical, because the patients who we tended to use them in 
are underrepresented in the registration of clinical trials that led to their FDA indication. So, you know, so that's kind of the background why, you know, whether it be cefitoprol or any of the new drugs, we really need to see how well these drugs perform in real-world hospital setting and patient populations for its targeted use. So that's why I think this poster was so important. And, and really what they did here is looking at non-COVID-infected patients with a documented gram-negative infection. Um, they looked at, you know, cefitoprol here. And again, looking at this patient population, very inconsistent with those who I encounter in my clinical practice as well as other um, practitioners. Average age was about 60. These patients had a lot of comorbidities, nearly half had renal disease. 70% um, have a carbapenem resistant gram-negative pathogen. Um, over half fit that you know, difficult to treat classification means that not only that were they resistant to um, carbapenems, but they're also resistant to other anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams like cefepime and, and piperacillin tazobactam. And the other problem with a lot of these, you know, carbapenem-resistant gram-negative infections, they tend to be polymicrobial in nature, meaning there's multiple carbapenem-resistant bugs. And what they found in this poster presentation, a third had a polymicrobial infection. And looking at the pathogen distribution, it kind of look at the four horsemen, I always say, when we think about resistant um, pathogens um, due to carbapenems. Acinetobacter, pseudomonas, um, stenotrophomonas, and, and Klebsiella pneumonia. So really kind of given us an opportunity to evaluate this drug. And what we found is all-cause mortality in the study was 16.4%. Um, so very consistent, you know, with other benchmarks. You know, this is a sick patient population at high risk for death. And we look at 14 days mortality from starting cefitoprol was about 8.4%. And 28-day mortality was around 13%. And we saw similar rates of mortality in those with pseudomonas and acinetobacter. So again, there's no comparator group here, uh, but really what it kind of gave us is, you know, some confidence and really highlights the potential effectiveness of this drug and its target population for use. But probably the most interesting finding in the study is they looked at um, the association between timing of cefitoprol treatment to the index culture and in-hospital mortality. So they looked at people who got cefitoprol within five days of the index treatment, six to 20 days and greater than 20 days. And as I told you before, every day matters. So interestingly, those who got treatment within five days of the index culture, again, really a benchmark of when the infection onset occurred, mortality was 10%. And what we see in each one of those increased delayed degradations, you know, six to 20 days and greater than 20 days, we saw about a 10% increase in mortality. So it went from 10.4 up to 19.4 and 31, and then from 19.4 to 31.3 in hospital mortality. So again, as I kind of mentioned before, is you know the biggest concern with AMR infections, it's not that the organism is more virulent, rather is our inability to identify it up front, resulting in these delays of therapy. So it's these delays of therapy and not you know optimizing drug dosing that really drives a lot of the mortality and morbidity we observe. And here it just kind of re-illustrates or reinforces the point I made before is the earlier you get treatment on board, the better patients do. And people are always concerned about, you know, overuse of drug is going to lead to resistance. Probably the single most important driver of resistance is failing it to get it right the first time. You double the patient's hospital length to stay, you keep them there, you have to treat them on antibiotics longer. And these are all things that drive the resistance arrow, more importantly than just using any one drug. Dr. Lodiz, I was wondering about that. Um, you, you're mentioning 
timely and and getting the the right antibiotic in the in the least amount of time as possible to get everybody on talk to us about the challenges in doing that i mean it, it sounds easier than execution um based on i'm sure your experience and other hospital system pharmacists listening yeah so i i think um so so Todd, let me start with this so right now if you remember you talked about those 12 million to 15 million people who have an infection within the hospital even among those with a susceptible infection a third won't get an active drug for two to three days. And it's been showed over multiple studies that I've done as well as others. If you have a AMR infection, whether it be an ESBL producing gram-negative infection, a carbapenem resistant gram-negative infection, half to two-thirds will not get an active drug uh, within the first two to three days. You know, and the way I always think about it is just imagine, you know, you went to your car mechanic and he said, I need to, I'm gonna, I want all my brakes replaced. And they say, Todd, you know what? On a good day, one out of four is not going to is going to fail. And on a bad day, if you have an AMR infection, you know two or two out you know two or three out of the four are going to fail. This is what we're dealing with every day in U.S. hospitals, and this is really what's driving a lot of the mortality and morbidity, not only associated with all infections but AMR infections in particular, given you have the doubling the rates of delayed appropriate therapy. So the question is why. Um, and, you know, it's multifactorial. So if you come into the hospital, you have a certain clinical syndrome, and there's a multitude of pathogens that it could be. You know, it could be gram-positive, it could be gram-negative, even if it's a gram-negative, you know, it could be a lactose fermenter or a non-fermenter. So I think part of the problem is, you know, we're lacking early um, rapid diagnostics. So there's been a lot of advance in this, in this area. Um, not all hospitals have adopted them. Um, but clearly, we need to get you know identifications of pathogens earlier on. So there's been a lot of strides in identifying the pathogens, but the place where we still need improvement is, well, what is the susceptibility of that pathogen to commonly used drugs? So I think in most cases, you know, I think clinicians are good at identifying what the likely pathogens and providing a drug that covers that pathogens. But what they're missing is, you know, that at-risk population who may have a resistant infection. So, you know, right now, you know, standard culture and susceptibility testing, you know, usually takes, you know, a couple of days to identify the organism and a day or two thereafter to get the susceptibility profile. And if you fail to get it right up front, what happens is, you know, once you finally get the culture result, the physician writes the order, pharmacy fills it, they send it up to the floor, the nurse administers to a patient. That's how we get that four to five day delay. So, you know, I think we're, so the question going back to your question, hey, I think we're doing a good job at identifying what the likely pathogens are, but there's an underappreciation for, you know, those at risk for a resistant infection. So there's been, again, there's been improvements in rapid diagnostics to help with that, but I think clinicians really need to think about when they look at a patient is, okay, you know, where did this patient come from? And actually, a lot of patients who present with AMR infections, particularly carbapenem resistant infections, arrive to the hospital with it, right? So you think resistance is bad in hospitals, it's even worse in long-term care facilities and skilled nursing homes, because you know at least we have a semblance of infection control in our hospitals, and, and those are um, somewhat lacking across those institutions. And you know what you see is you know what your neighbor has is colonized with, you'll be colonized with this later. Um, so thinking about where the patient come from, you know, have they had infections in the past, 
Have they had multiple courses of antibiotic that disrupts the microbiome, making them vulnerable to colonization with resistant pathogens? And really kind of thinking about the cumulative effect of all these risk factors, we really need to do a better job. Those are the patients we need to start thinking about the new drugs. So historically thought we would start a carbapenem in them. However, you know, with all this carbapenem resistance, I think we need to start thinking about early aggressive therapy, you know, and people who know we're going to have culture-confirmed um, infections, that's where we need to start thinking about adding on sifiterical early or any of the other new drugs. Because I think before, we had this historical reliance on carbapenems for those individuals who kind of that high-risk patient with those, you know, cumulative number of risk factors. Now I need to, we need to have 2023, 2024 thinking where, you know, carbapenems are now shifted down the line. They're not the last line. And in those individuals who are extremely high risk, particularly those who are even something as simple as, you know, uh, had a carbapenem resistant infection in the past or were colonized with a carbapenem resistant organisms, we need to be more aggressive there. So I think it's an underappreciation of the risk factor and over-reliance on carbapenems. And I think we need to shift the way we manage our patients and start these new drugs earlier because, you know, starting a drug day five or day six is too late. You know, Todd, if you had cancer, and your doctor said, you know, you have prostate cancer. We're going to start out conservative. And it's only when you start really doing poorly and circling the drain, then we're going to get address aggressive and give you the new drugs. You would walk right out of there. But this is what we do in our high-risk patients. And, and we know what the risk factors are for patients with carbapenem-resistant gram-negative infections. And I think what we need to do now is, is be more proactive in them. And again, it's a small slice of the patients in our hospital, but those who would benefit most um, from these newer drugs. I appreciate that. And and wrapping up, this has been a very enlightening uh, interview. I just want to thank you. I know that our um, our listeners appreciate this. I think of real world data and being able to assess the needs and next steps. So, you know, why is it important to assess that real world outcomes data in patients with gram negative bacterial infections? Yeah, like, so I think one of it is, you know, we're just not getting a, you know, a, a true reflection of how these new drugs work across our registrational trials that resulting in the labeling and what they're indicated for. Um, you know, we're all encountered these different resistant bugs. You know, we have more of a carbapenem resistance pseudomonas problem, other institutions, and acetobacter. So it gives you, it kind of highlights, you know, what this drug's effectiveness is. You can benchmark it. I think ultimately what we need is, you know, we have all these new drugs. We need some comparative effectiveness data between them to see which one is the best. Um, but alone, I think, it, you know, it gives us confidence that, you know, if we do use this, these patients will have outcomes, which we expect. You know, not everybody is going to have a positive outcome with the with the AMR infection, right? You know, 20% are going to die. And, and really what we're trying to do in antibiotics is kind of get up to that 80% response rate, right? So really getting patients who benefit from, you know, um, optimally dosed antibiotics to maximize their response and kind of minimize, you know, some of the negative consequences associated with delayed therapy or, or inadequate therapy because of an inadequate dose. So to me, I, I look at this data, not only with sifiterical and other drugs, and kind of look at them across, again, you sh really shouldn't do that, but kind of get an idea is, and, 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 you know, in someone who receives an optimal drug, what are the expected outcomes? And, and this is kind of what I observed here. There's a demonstrated benefit of getting a drug earlier on board. And I think ultimately, Todd, I think I always think about is, you know, the poster is a promise of a publication. You know, I, I look forward to seeing this published, but more importantly, 
kind of seeing this drug compared to some of the other new ones. We have a, a few new uh, tools in the toolbox at this point, right? So there's yeah, there's been an impressive response to these carbapenem resistant brand negatives. They all have their their benefits. Um, and, and now I like to see is, you know, which is the best one for pseudomonas, right? You know, I, I think the issues with the carbapenems not being optimal is clear and, and helping us to differentiate between them is, is where I would like to see some of this, this evidence go. But as, as a standalone poster, this gives us reassurance where we had a patient today um, or last month who, who required sifiterical for, you know, a similar constellation of bugs. And, you know, having data like this helps to support us to make that decision. Dr. Tom Lodiz, it's been a uh, pleasure to have you on uh, from Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. We appreciate your insights, and I, I want to invite you back uh, to get into 2024 and, and talking, talking about more um, ID-specific uh, subjects. Uh, this is uh, fascinating, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I would welcome the opportunity to come back, and I will have a background as cool as yours next time, I promise. So that, that will be my promise if you invite me back. How about that? Well, we appreciate you. Um, once again, thank you, Dr. Tom Lodiz. And um, we will, uh, we will, like I said, we'll, we'll be welcoming you back in a future discussion of infectious diseases. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. You, you have a good day.